This is You'll Die Trying with Nathan Morris. You'll Die Trying contains sensitive subject matter and conversations surrounding death and dying and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is respectfully advised. This is You'll Die Trying, a show that pulls back the curtain, pulls away brick by brick the walls to expose the heart of the people the funeral director's taking care of. The people. I hope you have been well. I have been inundated and diving into Monday.com. I spoke a little bit about it in the previous episode. It's a platform that really helps you keep on track. And in my life, I can't remember a single thing. So on Monday, it does a pretty good job of helping me maintain a sense of, well, not really, but I have Andrew and Megan and everyone else to keep me on task. Check it out if you are a business and want to be more productive because people who aren't productive are not happy. Trust me. I spent four hours watching a, <laughs> a conference online about that itself. And if you haven't already noticed, we're going to be doing something a little bit different with You'll Die Trying. We have totally revamped this vision for this podcast. Every episode of You'll Die Trying will also have an episode talking about the episode of You'll Die Trying. It is called The Obituary. So this episode as it has just dropped, so has You'll Die Trying the Obituary. Be sure to go and subscribe to that podcast this very moment, wherever it is you do get your content, so that you can hear Micah and Andrew dissect this episode in real time. So listen to this, head over there and listen to that, pull up a seat, put your PPP Well, not PPP, that would be the money that was given to all of us during a pandemic. Put your PPE on and let's dive right in. This is You'll Die Trying. I so badly wanted to be a garbage man. Yes, at seven years old, on the bus stop at the corner of Thistle and thresher, I would watch these guys drive by while waiting for the bus, and these gentlemen would jump off the back bumper. They were holding on to this metal bar. They would run to the toters that were on the side of the road, and they would push the toters to the back of this dirty blue truck, pulling a lever. You may be too young to remember that because now you see the arm kind of like what you would see at an arcade picking the dumpster up and tipping it over into the side. These guys had a lever. I wanted a lever. I wanted an orange, shiny reflector vest. After school that day, I remember running home to my mom in my uniform. It was probably stained with dirt. I wore navy pants and a white polo at our private school. And I said, mom, mom, I want to be a garbage man. And she said, sweetie, I think you could do more than that. Nothing against garbage men because they're obviously doing a much needed task and it's our beautiful tax dollars that are 
paying them and they probably are taken well care of. Again, it was the lever, but I set my eyes on something else. And at 10, I wanted to be a magician. Remember David Copperfield and those Lance Burton TV specials that came on ABC, CBS way back when? I had my grandmother. She would tape over her figure skating VHS recordings for me. And I'd watch, rewatch, and rewatch these tricks, these masters of illusion with these epic setups, TPs and saws and ghosts. And I wanted to learn how to do those tricks. I learned close-up magic. My mother and father bought me this 400, 500-page book on magic. I learned coin tricks and card tricks and tricks with paper clips and anything that anyone could get their hands on, I could make appear after making it disappear. I wanted to travel the world and captivate audiences worldwide with my magical skills. I loved being in front of people. I loved the reaction. I loved it. I remember on Thanksgiving, I took a VHS recorder and recorded a magic special of my own and everyone in the house had to sit, whether they wanted to or not, and watch it. And they all watched it. And believe it or not, it was pretty dang good. There were some cheesy moments, of course, and an awesome bowl cut, but I wanted to be a magician. I probably went and saw David Copperfield five, six, seven times, and I'm not really sure how mom or dad paid the mortgage this particular month because the tickets were really expensive, but nonetheless, it was totally worth it and a great, great memory for me. And then after that, at 15, I made the ultimate decision that would change the trajectory of my life. And I was going to become a pop artist. I'd started taking voice lessons at eight years old, and I sang solos in music class with Miss Harris. God bless you, woman. You are a saint. I still pass her husband's accounting office. He taught me in peewee football, and I'll never forget kicking the football directly into his crotch. <laughs> He fell to his knees and screamed, not that way. Hey, you got to learn somehow. Sorry about that, Mr. Harris. He's a great guy. So I'd taken these voice lessons. I'd started singing in music class in church. But I realized again that I enjoyed entertaining people. I enjoyed the fact that people enjoyed what it is I was doing. At an early age, I, I caught on. I held on to that. I was going to make a living at it. I was going to travel the globe. I was going to be the next Justin Bieber. Two days after graduating high school. Now, my high school was far different than most high school's experiences, I went to private schools my entire life. Freshman year of high school, I recall I did not make the basketball team. I was so mad. I've gone to school with these people my entire life. I went home to my mother and I said, I am not going to that school. I didn't make the team. I'm going somewhere else and trying out. 
I went to a public school, tried out for basketball right after Christmas break. I made the team. I finished that semester and that season at that school. And then I went back to private school. Played football for the private school, kicking. And I probably could have gone somewhere with it, but my eyes were set on music. Again, two days after graduating high school, I hopped on a plane, flew to Raleigh, North Carolina, was picked up in an old, beat-up, white Jeep Cherokee. Thanks, J-Bro. And then I was driven and hopped on a bus, and I traveled the entire continental United States with four guys who ultimately became some of my dearest of friends who would put five young adults, teenagers together and let them wreak havoc. I'm, I'm not really sure. One of those guys is Brent. Brent, the producer of the podcast, the producer of many a things in my creative repertoire, I suppose. He started to produce and record songs with me. We would write and record. He essentially helped me find my voice. Now, if you sing or know anyone who does sing, it is not easy. There are a lot of different things and techniques in regards to singing, especially at eight when you learn how to sing and then you go through puberty and your voice begins to change. For me, it was very difficult to find my voice again. And Brent really helped to get that out of me and learn to control breathing and the way in which you project. I could go on and on about, you know, how it is you sing, but Brent truly helped. So I released an EP in 2005. Those things were, and I think maybe still somewhat cool. It's a, it's like a small album where you put four to six songs on. So people get an idea of your sound. It's what record labels will do a lot of times when, you know, they don't necessarily invest in the full album. They're investing in singles. 2005, I released this EP called Leaving Duralee. It actually was nominated for Independent Release of the Year next to a small band called Hanson and Taylor Swift at the time. Yeah, I know. And then in 2007, I released A Gentleman's Closure. It was a do you remember those CDs, the little things that shine and stuff? I don't know if you do, but this is this is before Facebook was really taking off. This is before Twitter. This is before Instagram and, and Snapchat. And I was pumping the road. I was playing clubs, bars. I was making a name for myself. I was traveling the Midwest and the East Coast. Music videos, radio shows, the buzz was happening. People started showing up. Whenever people would hear Nathan Morris, they would be there. Sounds arrogant, perhaps, 
but the picture is real. I would play shows at these sorority houses because I realized pretty quickly that if the girls are there, then the guys will follow. And it was really awesome to see the things that we were doing without any support of a label and what was happening as a result. Thousands of records, thousands of singles were being sold because of my efforts and the pieces were finally connecting. Now, to produce this record, A Gentleman's Closure, I teamed up with Nathan Walters. Nathan Walters is a boy band member. He is a producer. He is a dear friend, and I've known him for forever. We actually were on a tour in 2003 called Festival Condios. Festival Condios is a, was a, God rest its soul, a music festival, outdoor music festival that would pop up uh, much like your Bonnaroo's, but it would travel the United States. And Nathan and I became friends during this time when Plus One, his once boy band, went from five to three and they revamped their sound. Nathan and I had produced and recorded all these songs together. It was uh, an 11-song album. It was very honest, sincere, and many glasses, bottles of wine were consumed during the recording process. A Gentleman's Closure was actually funded just because I had uh, to work at Starbucks. I had to work at a space and place to fund it and my, and my goals and Starbucks was my job. I got up, I was at Starbucks at four in the morning. Maybe it was five. I don't actually remember. It was very early. And there are some people out there listening who are very serious about their lemon loaf. So all you lemon loaf lovers, if I ever let you down, I'm sorry. They sell out fast. So we recorded this album. Every penny went to this album. And do you remember those Starbucks playlists? The ones that are really were really popular. You go in, you get your latte, you sit down, you read the Wall Street Journal because you want to be cool. And you hear some curated playlists overhead. All of them are really good. They're great. But every quarter, we would release on the front of the kiosk the albums that were picked by Starbucks. So I had the idea and audacity to contact corporate many times, by the way, to get my album in the stores. And I was absolutely using and leveraging me being a barista at Starbucks to do that. I end up getting in touch with someone who is in charge of the music. I send them a gentleman's closure. They listened to it. And I was driving down I-40 East. I will never forget it. And I get a call from Starbucks. And they said, we are going to place you in Starbucks Worldwide Overhead on playlists. That album, Closure, was placed in Starbucks Worldwide. That was 
a big moment for me. From there, it was American Airlines. From there, it was Buckaroo Jeans, a, a Korean clothing company endorsing and traveling and talking to labels and you name it, it was happening and it was happening fast. And I loved every second of it. And then one day, I sat across from a label and an artist had just assaulted another artist. You probably know which headline I am discussing, but I will not speak any further. I just recall the A&R eating a mouthful of Cheetos and saying, hey, their fans will like him for a few years. So essentially I could have been a, a plug-in for a few years. All the years before of, you know, eating peanut butter sandwiches and living in a closet in a warehouse in a music a production company all this sacrifice and this person is saying that for a few years we can have you I was livid I was pissed I was discouraged I was a lot of things I wasn't happy that's one thing I was not I came home to North Carolina to then come home to Kentucky where I'm from. My brothers said, Nathan, let's go out for your birthday. And those of you who are in the public eye and funeral directors or leaders, the last thing you want to do when you're around people all the time is what? Be around people. But I went and we had drinks and we had food. And then we had a pretty, pretty brunette. That is where the whole story changes. Oftentimes it tends to when it comes to a female for you males out there and you know exactly what I am talking about. In walks this brunette and shortly thereafter a girl who I will call by name because it is serendipitous at this point. Her name is Kelsey. Now, Kelsey and I have not spoken since back in my freshman basketball days. She went to that school. Super nice, kind, absolutely friendly. But we only said hello in passing. And I recall what she said. She says, hey, are you still doing music? How is it going? I reply, yeah, it's going well. How are you? She says, good. And then she gets right to it. Are you dating anyone? No. And then it was her head turning and acknowledging the pretty brunette, Megan. Megan walks up and we began to speak. Now, most of you are saying, oh, that's sweet. Oh, cool. Story's over. It's not really over, actually. It's just beginning. She told me what she did. And for those of you who know what a funeral director is, you have to remember in 2010, she did not at all, at all, look like, act like, 
talk like the stereotypical funeral director. 2010, I believe it was a man's world. It always was when I grew up. I mean, I remember visitations and going to funerals as a young boy, and it was always men in suits, and they were talking, and they were so confident. And here we have a confident female who knows what she is and does, and I was absolutely intrigued by that. She began to interact with my brothers, and our friendship, Megan and I's, my brothers and Megan's friendship, instantaneously sparked. I realized there is something here. This whole life of chasing and selfishness that I had previously experienced and in this moment I'm still fueling is not what I'm experiencing with, with her. I did not go back to North Carolina for two weeks. I actually went to her father's office. Now, Mike is very intimidating if you do not know Mike. He is very serious. He can joke, but he's very serious. He married into the profession. He raised six children. Megan was the only that took interest in this profession. And you don't get hired into this profession. The funeral profession is something you're born into. You literally have no leg up if you are not related to the owner, know the owner very, very well, or are married to the owner. I sat in his office, a stupid, musician sat in the office of a successful funeral home owner. And I said, I want a job. Mike replies, you're out of your damn mind. I said, sir, I will be the best employee that you have ever had. And I'm not leaving your office until you give me a job. I sat there for four hours. We sat in silence, and I believe we watched the same Western movies over and over and over. He finally put his pipe down. He looked at me, and he said, I'm out of my mind, but I'm going to give you a shot. That was a moment for me. I left the office. I went to Megan, my best friend, and I said, your dad gave me a job. She was beside herself. Now I spent the next week getting my things thrown into boxes and then shipped via DHL to Owensboro, Kentucky. And I am now immersed in a world of death. A world surrounded by people who are grieving, and those who are leading are selfless. The most selfish human in the entire world is now standing amongst some of the most selfless people in the entire world. I spent two years grieving my loss of what I thought in the music profession. How could someone fail at their biggest dream goal 
and what was going so well. I considered what I was doing a failure. I considered this new life to be the end of me. And it was the polar opposite. Megan and I go on to get married. Megan and I go on to have four boys. Megan and I go on to create a company, Morris Family, that is arguably one of the most progressive in our field. It was 2016. We were in the front porch of the funeral home. And at this time, I realized, hey, you know, maybe, just maybe I can start. Maybe I can start being creative again. It had been a while. I released a a project in 2013 that I thought people wanted to hear instead of what I wanted to put out. And it did not do well. The songs are great, but the heart behind it was not. And I finally realized if I'm going to put myself back out there, I need to be honest and genuine. I began to vlog. If any of you know Casey Neistat or Mr. Beast or any of those on YouTube, I wanted to create that platform. The funeral profession didn't have anything like that. It still to a degree does not. And that is what this podcast is about, is content. And I was going to release content and I was going to intertwine musician and mortician. And I am recording a video at this particular time and the phone rings and the phone call is in regards to a family who had lost someone and they needed to come in and make arrangements and they would be there within 30 minutes and where they were coming from I knew that it had been snowing this particular day so I had hung up the phone continued to talk and for the next 30 minutes was gathering video footage for my upcoming vlog the phone rang a little later and it was Dave at the cemetery who said, hey, you have an upcoming funeral here, but there's been a fatal accident sh shortly before this phone call. I said, as I'm recording, I hope it wasn't them. It was them. The phone call that I take 30 minutes prior, speaking to this person who had just lost a family member, they're on their way to make arrangements for their family member and they pass away in a car crash. I was heartbroken and it was captured on camera. I vlogged a death. I remember those next four days it was from the time of arrangements to the time of burying each loved one, how exhausting it was. We had two boys at the time. We multiply like rabbits, so two boys. And I go home and I record myself on a camera, the same camera I was vlogging earlier, but this was simply just to essentially confess this was to sit and to get it all out there because we kind of keep it to ourselves as directors, as funeral directors. We have to be tough. We have to be the strongest in the room, the leader, stoic, all these things that you know and you are shaking your head. Yes, we have to be that. And you can't be that all the time. 
I couldn't be it anymore, but I wasn't ready to be it for everyone. So I spoke to the camera, heartfelt thoughts in regards to this particular situation. This was a defining moment for me. This helped me to realize that I can do both. I can be creative in a musical world, in a vlogging world, in video and in content, but I am an incredible funeral director. And this was divine in the fact that I am now a funeral director. That video was put private on my YouTube channel. I fell asleep this night. I woke up late the next morning. Now late now is 7.30, but late then was 10.30. I wake up and my phone had blown up. I had 100 plus notifications. That video was found overnight by the family. That video was shared by the family and seen thousands of times. This vulnerable moment that I had had, that I had once previously had with a gentleman's closure, but now I've had with a video that I thought was gonna be private, was very much public. And I was in the crosshairs of what do I do? The notifications were not anger, frustration. They were of appreciation and gratitude and thankfulness that the person in which that took care of those that they love more than anything in this world have in fact a heart and a connection to the situation and circumstance. That is the moment that I realized that I can do both. It's really interesting how the obstacle is not in the way, the obstacle is the way and that becomes the way. Pretty funny, huh? I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if you love what you're doing. I don't know if you think you love what you're doing. All I can do is encourage you to continue doing it because it's interesting how we make plans and life happens. Take a moment, shut your eyes as you cut your favorite client's hair. I bet you'd be an awesome funeral director. I'm just saying. This segment of Death Over Decaf, as always, is brought to you exclusively by Big Turkey Foot Coffee. Go over to right now, youldietrying.com, hit the store and get you a big old pound of it, get you a couple of pounds of it, and enjoy a delicious cup while we talk about incredible, incredible things. Like, like we do with Nathan, Nathan Walters. I mean, it's only fair that we talk to him. I mean, I did throw out that he was in a boy band and I defined him as a boy band member. Sorry, Nathan. I want you to know you belong in my life. I love the hope I see in your eyes. For you, I will fight. Talked about it. I talked about a gentleman's closure. It was written in 2007 with my good friend, Nathan Walters. He is someone you didn't know that you know. You probably had him on your boy band mix CD. Written on my heart, start to fly. He sold millions of records. He's toured with Jessica Simpson or Jess Simp or Jay Simp, I guess is a cool way to do it. Did all those boy band moves and has checked many of the boxes off of a list that most artists, bands dream of doing. He's sweet, he's handsome, he's creative, he's a dear friend for 14 years. And we always talk music and life and 
now we're going to sit and, and talk death. But first, I just want to know, how many semis were on your tour? Oh, wow. Thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah. Uh, how many semis? Oh, for that, that tour you're talking about that we actually did together for a bit, right? We're on, um, we definitely had at least two, and I think it was two. Sem- we had two semis and then a few buses. That was a huge tour. That was, was that cost too much. I think that's why we're not touring it, anymore. <laughs> it wasn't a huge. Did you say it wasn't a huge? It, no, no, tour? it was. It was a huge tour. Oh. I think, and I was like, that's why we're not touring anymore. It just, it just took us over the edge. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's amazing. Um, yeah, you're talking about. I, the, I, yeah. uh, I was talking about the tour that you did. The the big plus one was an yeah. obvious tour. Yep, obvious tour. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. cool to think that people who are listening have probably been there and screamed your name, you know? I just I just wondered, I was thinking, you know, what do you wish happened that didn't, or do you not think that way at all? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. In general, I, I, I used to be that kind of person. Oh, I, you know, I wish this happened and that happened, but honestly, not to sound cliche, it's like things that happen really make shape who you are. So think the, all the quote-unquote bad things that may have happened on that tour or anything in, in my career or life, um, yeah, I don't necessarily wish didn't happen because it, it really changed who I am for the better, and I'm always growing and learning from those things. But um, I don't know. I, okay, here, here's one thing, <laughs> if you want to get so specific about that, that tour. Yes, the, the obvious tour. The obvious tour, I do wish um, – we were a little wiser on how we how we spent some things up front. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty, whatever the phrase is. Um, and because I think that tour was great. It started out with all these big semis, like you said, you know, big lights, big stage, like crazy. Um, and then towards the end of the tour, we just had to scale back because of some unforeseen things that couldn't happen. <laughs> um, we right. and and uh, yeah, and so by the end of the tour, we 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 scaled back, and it was it wasn't that, you know. So I wish we would have maybe met right. somewhere in the middle, you know, but no one knows the future and no one foresaw those things happening that, that made us scale back. But, um, but that being said, Hey, that was a fun tour and you were there for a bit. All right. Just a, just a little bit. Yeah. The yeah, very, very tail, yeah. tail end. I was talking in this podcast about, you know, my, my journey as this artist. And do you feel that artists are universally, you know, addicted to this chase and the attention? Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yep. I I, so, so, you know, I was an artist myself. I, I would say I still, I still am an artist, but you know, currently I, I produce records now. So I almost feel like I've branded myself as a music producer, but um, I'm still an artist. And, but, but as a producer, I, I work with so many different types of artists and I have for years now that now I have come to the conclusion that, um, being an artist can be great if you surround yourselves with people and ideas that can ground you. Because if you don't have that, um, it will be an endless chase for something that doesn't exist, you know? And what that is, is it's always the, I guess it's just, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the, it's human nature to feel like, oh, I'm just, I haven't arrived. It's just, this isn't fulfilling, you know? And uh, not to get super deep right away. I don't know if this is where you want to go, but it's like uh, there is only one thing that can fulfill us, you know, in life as humans. And as a Christian, that's that's what I believe is, is God. But um, but as humans, it's like we're always looking for something else. And so artists, I see do that. They're like, 
and, and I'm guilty of it as well. Oh, if I could just make that one record with that one producer, then, then everything will make sense. And then you do it. Oh, if I could just get X amount of streams on Spotify, then everything will be. And then you do it. Oh, if I could just get this many records sold and then you do it, you know, and, and it, even, even with what the, you know, you, it was a nice introduction you, you said and you gave about, you know, things I've done and, um, you know, I when I look back and I and I see wow I've sold over in this band plus one we sold over a million records close to was it one and a half million records that's a big deal and but still even in the height of plus one there are times where I felt like well it's mainly a Christian band for Christian music I wish we were a real band on mainstream you know and then we did some mainstream stuff on the Disney Channel Nickelodeon even on MTV and even toured the world well you know and then you start making excuses well it's not like this band you know it is never fulfilled even in the height of your career it never feels fulfilled that's my experience and so um so it's a dangerous slope as an artist to always be searching for something that will fulfill you that being said, I think it's good to have goals, and and as humans, we always like adventure, and we will always be adventuring. Just that's why we go to space. That's why we, you know, go to the depths of the ocean. That's why we conquer. You know, we're, it's in our nat- in our DNA. Um, but uh, to answer your question, yeah, artists are always on this journey. Um, is that what you asked me? Do you think that? <laughs> yeah, definitely okay. did, and that it's it's awesome because I'm sitting here just shaking my head. Do you think if you just sit and you just ponder into space and you think has it all been worth it has it do i think that yeah do you think it's been worth it just this this um yeah this uh journey that you've been on yeah i think um i I see what you mean but has it been worth it yeah um you know what i'll be honest there are some there are some moves i made towards music that was not worth it um, I think in my earlier years, yeah, it was worth. Was it worth leaving my hometown and going to Nashville and and, and going for my dreams? Um, yeah, it was worth it. You know, I, I lost some friendships that I wasn't able to cultivate in that hometown, um, but I made new ones. And you know, and and um, I pursued different things. You know, instead of finishing school, I pursued music. You know, I don't have a college degree. I went to college for a little bit, but I sacrificed in some other areas. Um, and, and for me, was it worth it? Uh, yeah, it's it's my journey. It's I'm passionate about it. You know, um, there are days where I sometimes go, man, should I have gone and been a a lawyer or a uh, in, in real estate? You know, and you can still, I guess, in real estate, I still dabble in that. But um, you know, I, you know, you have thoughts as as a human. Like, um, but that being said, I, I have made moves after I got married where it wasn't worth it. You know, there's a drive to be successful in music that is needed. Um, where you do have to sacrifice some things in life, you know, it might be in, instead of watching Netflix or a movie or that kind of, you know, you got to sacrifice and put in some time to write that song or, or whatever, you know, it could be during the day, not, not always at night. Um, like, like you, you and I, Nathan, you know, we, we work together. You're, you're probably sacrificing some time that could be toward, toward some business moves that you're going, you know what, I'm going to put towards myself because I'm passionate about doing this, you know? And there's always some type of sacrifice. You got to see what, what, what that is. And, um, but for me, yeah, I made moves. I, I, I regret, I, th- I think the early beginning stages of my, my marriage, I was so adamant, I was so passionate and used to doing music for a living that without even thinking ho- was horrible. But I, I, I abandoned my wife, Ina, in, in some times where, easily would just get lost in the studio and then realize, oh my gosh, 
what am I doing? It's 12 o'clock at night, you know? And, and, um, you know, that, that hurt, that hurt our relationship a little bit in, in, in some ways that we had to rebuild, but we learned from, you know, and, and grew, we have a great strong marriage now, but, um, yeah, there's some things I, I regret when I, when I think of it that way. That got heavy yeah, real I think quick. It's <laughs> important. No, that's, no, that's great. I think it's, I think it's awesome. That's what this is really about. And we've just been reflecting a lot this, this episode and, I was thinking about this just because I'm on this side of the fence, I guess you will now with celebrating life and all of that. But do you ever sit and think about the fact that your art, the art you create, whether as an artist or as a producer with me and many other successful artists, I mean, it's going to long outlive you. Oh yeah. You thought about that? Yeah, I do think about that. And I and I thought about it more now that I have kids. I have two kids. I have a four year old and a son and a daughter who's eight. And um I do think of it differently now. Like um I'm I'm kind of now getting back into that artist moment where I'm writing I'm writing some songs for myself now. And I and I I'm thinking of it that way where um I'm kind of ma- I'm making music for myself now, and there also there's some business ideas I'm floating around. You know, I want to make some money from it. But uh, besides that, I'm really thinking, wow, I'm I'm recording these moments now because I know one day my voice will get older, and sometimes I feel like I hear it slightly dropping. <laughs> it's a little lower than it used to, and maybe maybe that's just I'm more confident in life now. No, but um, I <laughs> I do feel like um, I want to capture where I'm at now. And how I feel, what I'm thinking, how I sound now, and I want to record that because that will be that will be always recorded to where now that I have kids, that's where I was going with it. Now that I have kids, I know they'll be able to, you know, look back and oh, that's my dad, you know. And I know it sounds kind of self indulgent, but you know, they'll be like, oh, that's my dad. I remember that, you know. And even after I die, I you think know? artists are all self indulgent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in some way, yeah, to a degree. Yeah, yeah it's kind of sad, but what do you want to be? remembered for when the curtain closes when the song fades out like what do you want to be remembered for uh i i would like to be remembered for someone who was um who was passionate you know about what i was doing and authentic i've been i have i have you know i have in in my life, I've been in situations where I have been tempted not to be as authentic in certain situations, and I've regretted that. Um, I want to be authentic in what I'm doing, like whether it's, it's doing music, if it's talking about my faith, if it's talking about if I if I'm strong in my faith or if I'm weak in my faith, or um, or if I'm happy or sad in life. I, I want to be authentic where people feel connected, like he was he was authentic, he was real, you know. Um, and and I, I really want to want to be known as as a good father and husband. It's weird. The older, older I get, my my answer would have been different. Early, you know, years earlier, ten years ago, earlier, it would have been. Oh, I just think it's amazing for- that you that you still have put. You haven't once said anything about music. You, we, you said authentic authenticity. It's awesome, mm-hmm. and being an incredible husband and father is incredible. Yeah, because you know, take everything else away. What do you have? And that's really what, that's what matters. This new world. Yeah. That I'm in is about, you know, being creative. Yes. Is awesome. But, and at the bedside, creativity goes away and it's literally the hands of those you love most that are holding yours. Family comes first. It's always, always, you know, 
you've never been asked this. What does, and, and we're documenting this now, uh, so you're okay. essentially virtually pre-planning. <laughs> what does your okay. funeral look oh, like? Oh, wow. Okay. You know, okay. Uh, I actually was thinking about this the other day. Um, I didn't. I, I had the thought, but I didn't finish it, so I will finish the thought here. Um, you know, I, when I was younger, I used to think, oh, I want a bunch of people to come out to my funeral, and I'd, I'd, I'd love the idea of, yeah, a bunch of people. It's, it's so self-indulgent then. <laughs> I want lots of people to come <laughs> see me. Um, I, you know what? I honestly, it would be, I'm at a place now, it would be what, it, what does my family feel, what would help them grieve what will help them get a? I'm assuming if you know I die and, and they're still alive, that's kind of how I'm thinking it. Um, whoever's left behind grieving me, I, I want them to feel comfortable, and I don't want them to have to feel like they have to fulfill. Well, Nathan said he wanted this, you know. I want them to feel comfortable because I honestly would be like, I don't care, you know. <laughs> I I don't care at this point. I want them to feel like okay. Even down to, is it, is it cheaper for us to do this to his body instead? Do it. You know, that's fine. I'm really living for afterlife. Um, but I want my family not to feel like burdened during that time, um, you know, of grieving. And I want them, so if they want people around them, I want them to do that. If they want it to be by themselves and, and, and intimate, then I want them to do that. So I, it, that's kind of what I would, that's what I would will. I guess I should put that in a will, huh? <laughs> You absolutely should put it in. I should. I'm yeah, I need to do that. <laughs> well, you know, after all is said and done, after all the cool things that you have done, we've done together, it's pretty neat that, you know, at the end of the day, you and I get to share this friendship and do all this really cool stuff Yeah, together. And I just appreciate it. Thanks for all that you've offered this world through your creativity. I appreciate that. Oh man. Well, you know, I'm I'm so thankful for our, our friendship too. Like you said, it's been a while. Um I feel like over the years we've uh, you know, whether we take a break, we talk, we don't talk to each other for, for a couple of years, which never really truly happens. Um we you know, I feel like we we pick up kind of where we left off, but in a new way. I I actually have seen us kind of separate and then come back and and have seen you seen you uh, in a in a in a in a different light, and I say in a in a good light, where I'm like, wow, this guy, you've inspired me. I've seen where your your um your dis uh, your discipline and your passion and your drivenness is that a word um has shown through. Where I'm like, wow, this guy's this guy has grown up. You know, not like I'm putting you down in the past, but you have grown up a lot. Where uh, it's now inspiring inspiring me. So I'm I'm I'd say well, that to say I'm that. thankful for your friendship. I think it's amazing that you and Ina's marriage survived with my friendship there. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's it's yep. funny um, how we would stay up all hours of the night drinking bottles of wine and <laughs> tea, and Ina was so patient. But Nathan, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah. Thanks, man. Two down, a billion to go. Hey, again, a special thanks, Nathan. Nathan was in my wedding. And so was Brent with his beard. And anyway, it's just really nice to have good friends who support you and hold you up in this entirely crazy thing we call life. I hope you enjoyed that little bit. Hey, head over to yule.trying.com. Be sure to subscribe. 
to this podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast content, and then head over and listen to Feel Die Trying, The Obituary, streaming right now. All right, 115 in the bag. We'll see you at 116.